0: My name is Perry Lynn Johnson, and I'm the legal advisor and director of the Office of Legal Affairs at the International Atomic Energy Agency, headquartered in Vienna, Austria. It's my pleasure to deliver this lecture on the role of nuclear law in the use of atomic energy for peace and development. This title really encapsulates our basic mandate. Nuclear technology is often associated with non-proliferation and disarmament, but in fact, it has a much broader scope of application in different areas, such as medicine, agriculture, and power generation. The safe, secure, and peaceful use of nuclear technology and its applications have the potential to meet a wide variety of basic development needs in many areas of major social and economic significance. These areas include human health and nutrition, water resource management, food and agriculture, marine and coastal environment protection, and climate change studies. All of us benefit from nuclear technology in one way or another. Moreover, the use of nuclear science and technology directly contributes to nine of the 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals, otherwise referred to as the SDGs. International and national nuclear law play a vital role to ensure the safe, secure, and peaceful uses of nuclear technology. In my lecture, I aim to illustrate the importance of nuclear law in the use of atomic or nuclear energy. For peace and development in five parts. In the first part, I will identify the definition, objective, and principles of nuclear law. Second, I will look at the main branches or pillars of law in this field, including the existing international legal instruments governing nuclear safety, security, safeguards, and civil liability for nuclear damage. Third, We will zoom in on the role and functions of the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA. Fourth, we will consider the different specialized areas of international nuclear law. And finally, I will highlight the basic elements of a national nuclear law and the so-called 3S approach to national nuclear law. Let's begin by looking at the elements of nuclear law. Nuclear law is indispensable in realizing the various benefits of the safe, secure, and peaceful applications of nuclear science and technology. It has long been understood that nuclear technology requires well-structured legal arrangements to adequately protect people and the environment from the unique risks of these technologies. These legal arrangements are also aimed at ensuring that nuclear material and technology are used exclusively for peaceful purposes. The norms regulating nuclear technology date back to the mid-1940s, post-World War II, have been established at international, regional, and national levels, and continue to apply today. Early international efforts to control the use of nuclear energy were primarily restricted to preventing the spread of nuclear weapons. Later, these efforts were extended to other fields where international control was deemed necessary, such as radiation protection and transport of nuclear material. Over the decades, developments in nuclear law have been shaped by the existing political, economic, and social realities. The extent of public acceptance or opposition to the use of nuclear technology, particularly nuclear power, has also played a major role. Skepticism regarding the benefits of nuclear energy and the fear of risk accentuated by past nuclear accidents have led to a greater focus in this area of law on protection against nuclear risk and mitigation of damage. Today. Nuclear law affects all aspects of the entire nuclear sector. This ranges from the verification of nuclear non-proliferation commitments through the IAEA inspections to ensuring safe and secure operation of nuclear facilities at the national level, or the safe and secure transport of radioactive material, as well as ensuring there is civil liability for nuclear damage nuclear law defined? The IAEA defines nuclear law as the body of special legal norms created to regulate the conduct of legal or natural persons engaged in activities related to nuclear material, ionizing radiation, and exposure to natural sources of radiation. While nuclear law is its own area of law, It draws from and is connected with other areas of national and international law, such as international environmental law, international security law, and general international law. The objective of nuclear law is to provide a legal framework for conducting activities related to nuclear energy and ionizing radiation in a manner that adequately protects individuals, property, and the environment from the harmful effects of ionizing radiation and ensures that they are conducted exclusively for peaceful purposes. A basic feature of nuclear law is its dual focus on the risks and benefits arising from the use of nuclear technology and its applications. Nuclear law applies to a highly technical and complex field. This involves facilities, activities, and material, which potentially pose risks to people in the environment, including national and international security risks. Nuclear law applies at nuclear power plants, research reactors, facilities for spent fuel radioactive waste management, irradiation facilities, and facilities where nuclear and radioactive materials are produced, processed, used, handled, or stored. Nuclear law also addresses activities such as the production, use, import, and export of nuclear material and related equipment, radiation sources for industrial, research, medical, and other purposes, the transport of radioactive material, and the management of radioactive waste. The three main technical areas or branches of nuclear law, as I have been mentioning, are safety, security, and safeguards. These are the three S's, as well as civil liability for nuclear damage, otherwise referred to as nuclear liability, and that is the fourth branch of nuclear law. At the international level, Nuclear law comprises legally binding instruments such as multilateral treaties and legally non-binding instruments. In particular, the codes of conduct and safety standards adopted by the IAEA. At the national level, the focus is on comprehensive national nuclear legal frameworks, covering the four branches of nuclear law that we've been talking about, safety, security, safeguards, and liability, and providing the legal basis for the system of regulatory control of facilities, activities, and practices at the national level. The IAEA has and will continue to play a crucial role in the development of nuclear law. Because of its central role, I will focus in this third part of my lecture on the IAEA. The IAEA's genesis was U.S. President Eisenhower's Atoms for Peace address to the General Assembly of the United Nations on 8 December 1953. The ideas he shared in that address helped shape the IAEA statute, which 81 nations unanimously approved in October 1956. The statute which was adopted in 1957, lays down the objectives and functions of the IAEA. The three pillars of the IAEA's work, safeguards and verification, safety and security, and science and technology, are derived from Article 3 of the statute. The statutory objective is, and I'm quoting, to seek to accelerate and enlarge the contribution of atomic energy To peace, health, and prosperity throughout the world, it shall ensure, so far as it is able, that assistance provided by it, or at its request, or under its supervision or control, is not used in such a way as to further any military purpose. This central, this is central to the role of the IAEA. It reflects both the fears and expectations resulting from the use of nuclear energy. And simply put, the IAEA's mission is to manage this overall nuclear dilemma. On the one hand, to develop and facilitate the beneficial applications of nuclear technology, while on the other, to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons throughout the world. In the more than six decades of its existence, the IAEA has firmly established its role and position as an independent, multidisciplinary, science and technology-based intergovernmental organization in the United Nations system with unique expertise in the peaceful uses of nuclear technology. Over the decades, the agency has risen to the occasion and contributed to addressing many global challenges pertaining to nuclear safety, security, and non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. Today, the organization is widely known as the world's Atoms for Peace and Development organization. The IAEA is an autonomous organization in relationship with the United Nations governed by the IAEA statute and the relationship agreement concluded with the UN in 1959. The IAEA Board of Governors, serves as the executive organ of the agency, and the General Conference is the agency plenary organ, similar to the General Assembly of the United Nations. Both of these policy-making organs were established by the IAEA statute, which also sets out their functions. The Director General heads the organization and serves as its chief administrative officer. As may be expected from the world's foremost forum, for scientific and technical cooperation in this field the IAEA plays a multifaceted role in the development and implementation of the legal norms and sources of nuclear law simply put the organization has a threefold role first there are agreements concluded by the agency acting in its capacity as an international organization having legal personality under public international law Examples of such agreements are the Agency's Headquarters Agreement with the Republic of Austria, or Bilateral Safeguards Agreements, which the Agency concludes further to the Nonproliferation Treaty, based on which we conduct verification activities to ensure the peaceful uses of nuclear energy. Second, the Agency establishes technical standards and recommendations, such as the IAEA safety standards, and Nuclear Security Guidance Documents based on the authority granted to it under Article 3 a 6 of the Statute. These safety standards are adopted by the great majority of states into their national legal frameworks. Third, the agency's member states, we have 175 as of today, become parties to various agreements, treaties, and conventions concluded under agency auspices. The IAEA is not itself party to any of these treaties and conventions, but we serve as the depository, and in practical terms, we're the main facilitator for all of these instruments. In this fourth part of my lecture, we will now be exploring international nuclear law in its four main substantive areas. I've been referring to these, but now we're going to focus on what is nuclear safety, security, safeguards, and liability. This will include a discussion of the evolution and main international instruments in this field. Past events, such as the Chernobyl accident in 1986, the 1991 discovery, of a clandestine nuclear weapons program in Iraq, and the terrorist attacks of 11 September 2001, led to the development of new and the strengthening of existing international legal instruments on safety, security, safeguards, and liability. They were also a significant catalysts for changes within the agency, resulting in the strengthening of the IAEA's role in regard to safety, security, and safeguards. The Chernobyl accident resulted in a fundamental expansion of the agency's safety program, focused not just on development of safety standards, but also on their effective implementation. Similarly, 9-11 led to an immediate expansion of agency activities relating to nuclear security. After the uncovering of Iraq's clandestine nuclear weapons program, The need to strengthen the Agency Safeguards Framework became apparent and a new instrument called the Model Additional Protocol to Safeguards Agreements was enacted. And it was designed to grant the Agency more information as well as extended access to national nuclear sites. Such past events have certainly contributed to multilateralism and internationalization being hallmarks of the safe, secure, and peaceful uses of nuclear technology and its legal framework. Today, the management of nuclear risks, particularly those of a transboundary nature, is governed by an elaborate international legal and regulatory regime, consisting not only of customary international law, for example, in the field of environmental law, treaties and other legal instruments, but also of international standards, guidance, international best practices, as well as mechanisms to promote implementation and compliance. It's now a vast cooperative effort, with the IAEA at its core, having a recognized, important, and central role, also drawing upon other intergovernmental organizations and bodies. Before turning to the specialized international legal frameworks of nuclear law, let me explain the meaning of safety, security, and safeguards in the nuclear field. Safety, or protection, denotes the protection of people in the environment against radiation risks, as well as the safety of facilities and activities that give rise to radiation risks. It includes nuclear safety and radiation safety, Safety is concerned with both radiation risk under normal circumstances and radiation risk as a consequence of incidents, as well as with other possible direct consequences of a loss of control over a nuclear reactor core, a nuclear chain reaction, a radioactive source, or any other source of radiation. Nuclear security denotes the prevention and detection and response to theft, sabotage, unauthorized access, illegal transfer, or other malicious acts involving nuclear material, other radioactive substances, or their associated facilities. The IAEA safeguards play a central role in preventing the proliferation of nuclear weapons through the independent verification of states' compliance with their nuclear nonproliferation undertakings. The scope of the International Legal Framework for nuclear safety now addresses several areas. These areas of nuclear safety include emergency preparedness and response, the safety of nuclear power plants, the safety of radioactive waste management, and the safety of spent fuel management, the safety and security of radioactive sources, the safety of research reactors, and the safe transport of radioactive material worldwide. The international legal framework for nuclear safety consists of four treaties adopted under the agency's auspices. The Convention on Nuclear Safety, which we refer to as the CNS, was adopted in 1994. The CNS provides the foundation for the international legal framework, together with its sister convention, the 1997 Joint Convention on the Safety of Spent Fuel Management and on the Safety of Radioactive Waste Management. Then there are the post-Chernobyl instruments, the Convention on Early Notification of a Nuclear Accident and the Convention on the Assistance in the case of a nuclear accident or radiological emergency. The objective of the CNS, which entered into force on 24 October 1996, is to achieve and maintain a high level of nuclear safety worldwide through the enhancement of national measures and international cooperation. The CNS's scope of application is limited to land-based civil nuclear power plants as defined in the treaty and being under a contracting party's jurisdiction. The convention requires contracting parties to report on several elements relating to the regulation, management, and operation of nuclear power plants, which are then peer-reviewed by fellow regulators at meetings held every three years. The adoption of the Joint Convention marked another important step towards a comprehensive international legal framework on nuclear safety. The Joint Convention is the first and only internationally legally binding treaty in the area of spent fuel and radioactive waste management. It represents a commitment by participating states to achieve and maintain a high level of safety in these areas. The joint convention applies to a complete range of radioactive waste in liquid, gaseous, and solid form. This includes first the safety of spent fuel management, when the spent fuel results from the operation of civil nuclear reactors. Second, the safety of radioactive waste management when the radioactive waste results from civilian application. And third, to certain discharges. The joint convention also includes multiple provisions on the transboundary movement of spent fuel and radioactive waste and a separate provision the legal commitments concerning disused sealed sources the joint convention does not however apply to the safe management of spent fuel and radioactive waste within military or defense programs the joint convention is often referred to as the sister convention to the convention on nuclear safety for two reasons first its scope of application This is because the Joint Convention applies to the back end of the nuclear fuel cycle, whereas the Convention on Nuclear Safety applies to the front end, the plant itself. In other words, the Joint Convention starts to apply when the Convention on Nuclear Safety ends. And the Joint Convention also provides for a peer review mechanism that I referred to previously. It's modeled on the CNS peer review mechanism. The CNS and the Joint Convention are also called incentive conventions. This means they're designed to encourage consensus and participation with obligations on contracting parties that are based on fundamental principles that recognize state responsibility for nuclear safety. Unlike mechanisms and other legally binding international nuclear law instruments, such as those relating to safeguards, Effectiveness does not derive from specific obligations for non-compliance or reliance on dispute settlement provisions. Instead, the conventions the convention seek to rely on a common interest amongst their parties or peers, regulator peers, to achieve high levels of safety. The mechanism for realizing commonality is the holding of these Review meetings of the parties, which take place every three years. And the purpose of these meetings is to review reports submitted by each party on the measures they have taken to implement the obligations under the conventions. Contracting parties are not only obliged to attend such meetings, but they are also duty-bound to submit their respective national reports to this peer review process. Two other conventions are important in the area of nuclear safety. The early notification convention applies in the event of any accident involving specified facilities or activities of a state party from which a release of radioactive material occurs or is likely to occur and which has resulted or may result in an international transboundary release that could be of radiological safety significance to another state. The Assistance Convention provides an international framework to facilitate prompt request for and provision of assistance in the event of a nuclear accident or radiological emergency, and to promote, facilitate, and support cooperation between states parties to that end. These four conventions form the so-called family of nuclear safety conventions put into place following the 1986 Chernobyl accident. Establishing high-level principles, objectives, and requirements, they are respectively underpinned by a comprehensive suite of detailed, legally non-binding technical safety standards adopted by the agency as a statutory function. And the standards that we adopt reflect an international consensus on what constitutes a high level of safety, again, for protecting people and the environment from the harmful effects of ionizing radiation. An important safety standard is the IAEA regulations for the safe transport of radioactive material. These are referred to as the transport regulations, and they were first published in 1961. All states adopt these transport regulations. Um, As it's agreed, there has to be a common approach to transporting nuclear material globally. The early notification and assistance conventions are also supported by operational arrangements, which are the practical means by which the IAEA, its member states, and other international organizations maintain emergency preparedness, and effectively respond to any nuclear and radiological incident or emergency. Among the other non-binding instruments adopted under IAEA auspices in the area of safety, I would also like to mention the Code of Conduct on the Safety and Security of Radioactive Sources and the Code of Conduct on the Safety of Research Reactors. They address the safety and security of radioactive sources and civil research reactors, so the safety of civil research reactors, respectively. They've been designed to offer guidance to states for the development and harmonization of policies, laws, and regulations. These two codes of conduct have been convenient when recourse to the lengthy process of concluding a convention would not have permitted the prompt action expected by the member states. Unlike the CNS and Joint Convention, no peer-review mechanism exists in regard to the codes of conduct. But political commitments can be voluntarily made to the code of conduct on the safety and security of radioactive sources. And for both codes, voluntary meetings to discuss implementation are held every three years. As was the case with the 1986 Chernobyl accident, the accident at the Tokyo Electric Power Company's Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant in Japan on 11 March 2011 was a reminder for the international nuclear community, leading to a further strengthening of the international legal framework and the IAEA's role in this area. Several actions taken by the IAEA together with its member states and other stakeholders can be highlighted, focusing on those aimed at strengthening the international legal framework, IAEA peer reviews, emergency preparedness and response, and the IAEA safety standards. These actions have all contributed to the enhancement of the global nuclear safety regime. Efforts have focused on facilitating implementation Of the obligations of the contracting parties to the CNS and the Joint Convention, including encouraging full participation in the review meetings through attendance and submission of national reports. In addition, further to the action plan on nuclear safety adopted by the IAEA Board of Governors after the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear accident in September 2011, there is now an enhanced role of the agency in providing member states, international organizations, and the general public with timely, clear, factually correct, objective, and easily understandable information during a nuclear emergency, respecting its potential, with respect to its potential consequences. This includes analysis of available information and prognosis of possible scenarios based on evidence, scientific knowledge, and the capabilities of member states Turning now to nuclear security. Many of you will be aware that the events of September 2001 propelled a rapid and dramatic re-evaluation of the risks of terrorism in all its forms, including the threat of nuclear and radiological terrorism. It became rapidly apparent that the lesson of Chernobyl in the safety sphere should also be applied to security as well. That is, nuclear security should be urgently strengthened without waiting for a watershed nuclear security event to provide the impetus for security upgrades and expanded international cooperation. This branch of international nuclear law can be deemed as being most recently established of these pillars that I've been describing. And it's also witnessed the most recent significant developments. Further to 9-11, states agreed to strengthen existing international legal instruments, establish new instruments to enhance nuclear security worldwide, and strengthen the role of the IAEA. Consequently, the IAEA is today recognized as the Global Forum for Facilitating International Cooperation on Nuclear Security. No single international legal instrument addresses nuclear security in a comprehensive manner. The framework currently includes several treaties that are part of the so-called Common Universal Legal Framework Against Terrorism. The instruments have not only been adopted by and under the IAEA auspices, but also by and under the auspices of the UN and its specialized agencies, Notably, the International Maritime Organization and the International Civil Aviation Organization. Of particular importance in the field of nuclear security are the Convention on the Physical Protection of Nuclear Material and the Amendment thereto of 2005, both adopted under IAEA auspices, as well as the UN's International Convention on the Suppression of Acts of Nuclear Terrorism, also of 2005. The CPPNM Amendment, makes it legally binding to protect nuclear facilities and material in peaceful domestic use, storage, and transport. It also provides for expanded cooperation between and among states regarding rapid measures to locate and recover stolen or smuggled nuclear material, mitigate any radiological consequences of sabotage, and prevent and combat related offenses the entry into force of the cppnm amendment in 2016 marked an important day for efforts to strengthen nuclear security around the world further since 2006 the iaea has issued various security guides and recommendations in what we refer to as a nuclear security series And the series of publications includes recommendations on physical protection of nuclear material and nuclear facilities. The IAEA contributes to nuclear nonproliferation through the application of safeguards, pursuant to safeguards agreements designed to verify state's undertakings not to use nuclear material or related items for prescribed purposes, for example, to manufacture nuclear weapons or other nuclear explosive devices. The legal framework for safeguards consists of an array of international agreements under which the IAEA has responsibilities to implement these safeguards. This legal framework includes the statute, safeguards agreements, protocols to those agreements, and subsidiary arrangements. The IAEA statute include safeguards as one of the IAEA's main functions. Under Article 3 a 5 of the statute, the IAEA is authorized to establish and administer safeguards designed to ensure that nuclear material and other items made, a- made available by the IAEA or at its request or under its supervision or control are not used in such a way as to further any military purpose. That may involve, for example, an IAEA project under which the IAEA statute requires the application of safeguards. We are also authorized to apply safeguards at the request of parties to any bilateral or multilateral arrangement, such as the Nonproliferation Treaty, or treaties establishing nuclear weapon-free zones, or at the request of a state to any of that state's activities in the field of atomic energy. Although the statute provides the IAEA with the authority to apply safeguards, it does not obligate states to accept IAEA safeguards as a condition of membership in the IAEA. Safeguards provisions contained in the statute are only applied to the extent relevant to a specific project or arrangement For example, through a project and supply agreement, or a safeguards agreement concluded between a state and the IAEA. We may conclude safeguards agreements upon the request of member states and non-member states. And we may also conclude safeguards agreements with groups of states and regional organizations. Safeguards Agreements provide the legal basis for implementing safeguards for a state. These agreements contain the basic undertaking of a state to accept IAEA safeguards, as well as the agency's right and obligation to ensure that safeguards are applied in accordance with the procedures set out in the agreements. The IAEA applies safeguards for nearly every state in the world under three types of safeguards agreements. The Comprehensive Safeguards Agreement. This is concluded with non-nuclear weapon states, parties to the NPT, and to regional nuclear weapon free zone treaties. Most states in the world have a Comprehensive Safeguards Agreement. And these agreements are based on a document that we refer to, and it's mostly known as MFCIRC, Stroke 153, that's the, com- that's, the, that's the text that is the basis for the Comprehensive Safeguards Agreement. Safeguards under a Comprehensive Safeguards Agreement, or CSA, applied to all nuclear material and all peaceful activities within the territory or jurisdiction of the state or carried out under its control anywhere. Voluntary offer agreements, otherwise known as VOAs, are concluded with the five nuclear weapon states parties to the NPT, and you know who they are? China, Russia, France, US, UK. These are defined as nuclear weapon states under the NPT, and they are those which manufactured and exploded a nuclear weapon or other nuclear explosive device prior to 1 January 1967. Safeguards under a VOA apply to nuclear material in facilities or parts thereof that those states have offered for the application of safeguards. The IAEA then selects from the list of eligible facilities those at which we wish to apply safeguards. And the third category Item-specific safeguards agreements are for three non-NPT states, Israel, Pakistan, and India, under which safeguards apply only to nuclear material and other items like facilities or equipment and non-nuclear material that's specified in these agreements. They're referred to as item-specific safeguards agreements. And these agreements are based on the document reproduced in what we refer to as insert stroke 66 stroke rev 2 from 1968. Protocols concluded to safeguards agreements are an integral part of those agreements. Two types of protocols that have widely been concluded are additional protocols and small quantities protocols. Other types of protocols relate to arrangements for cooperation in the application of safeguards under certain safeguards agreements. For example, with groups of states and regional organizations. Or the suspension of the application of safeguards under an existing safeguards agreement when a new safeguards agreement has been concluded. Regarding additional protocols, after the discovery of undeclared nuclear material and activities in two states with CSAs in the early 90s, a model additional protocol, which is referred to as MSIRC 540, MCERC stroke 540, was approved by the IAEA Board of Governors in 1997. The objective of an additional protocol is to enhance both the effectiveness and the efficiency. IAEA safeguards. Additional protocols to safeguards agreements may contain provisions based on the model additional protocol for broader information about a state's nuclear fuel cycle related activities and broader access to locations in a state. An additional protocol may be concluded to any type of safeguards agreement. An additional protocol to a CSA must include all the provisions of the model additional protocol. Small quantities protocols to CSAs were introduced in the 1970s for states with little or no nuclear material, and no nuclear material in a facility. So long as the state met certain conditions under the small quantities protocol, this SQP would remain operational meaning that the implementation of many important procedures of the CSA would be suspended. In 2005, the IAEA Board of Governors decided that the SQP in its original form constituted a weakness in the safeguard system. The board approved a revised standard SQP, which made the SQP unavailable to a state with a planned or existing nuclear facility. An SQP based on the Revised Standard Text, for example, requires the state to provide to the IAEA an initial report on all nuclear materials subject to safeguards, and enables the IAEA to conduct inspections. The Board decided that existing SQPs should be subject to the modifications in the Revised Standard Text, and from that point forward, it would only approve SQPs based on the revised standard text. Many states with SQPs based on the original standard text have amended those original small quantities protocols. Subsidiary arrangements are provided for in CSAs and VOAs and have traditionally been concluded for item-specific safeguards agreements as well. Their purpose is to specify in detail how the procedures laid down in the agreement are to be applied. They typically include a general part, specifying, for example, contact points, formats, and timing for provision of information, and attachments. These attachments specify procedures for each facility, or locations outside facilities, we call these lofts, where nuclear material is customarily used. They may also be concluded Uh, to specify how to apply measures provided for in additional protocols. I now turn to the framework for nuclear liability, and this is the last pillar of nuclear law that we will be discussing. And this is about the importance of having in place effective and coherent nuclear liability mechanisms at the national and global levels to ensure prompt, adequate, and non-discriminatory compensation for damage to people, property, and the environment, including actual economic loss due to a nuclear incident. This principle is well recognized. Civil liability for nuclear damage is an important corollary of nuclear safety and security. To harmonize national laws, in the area of civil liability for nuclear damage, the international community has developed a series of conventions on civil liability for nuclear damage, which aim to ensure compensation is available for damage, including transboundary damage caused by a nuclear incident. Several multilateral treaties have been adopted under the auspices of the IAEA and the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD. The instruments were first adopted in the 60s. The Paris Convention on Third-Party Liability in the field of nuclear energy, which is open to all OECD members and to non-OECD members under certain conditions. In contrast, the 1963 Vienna Convention on Civil Liability for Nuclear Damage was concluded under the agency auspices and is open to all states. A protocol to amend the Vienna Convention was adopted on 12 September 1997. That protocol gave rise to the 1997 Vienna Convention on civil liability for nuclear damage. This coexists with the 1963 Vienna Convention as a separate legal instrument. The Vienna Conventions mentioned are linked to the treaties concluded under the auspices of the OECD by a 1988 joint protocol relating to the application of the Vienna Convention and the Paris Convention. Finally, an annex to the 1997 Convention on the Supplementary Compensation for Nuclear Damage, referred to as the CSC, also lays down nuclear liability rules for those states which are party to neither the Paris Convention nor the Vienna Convention or the amendments thereto. The 1997 instruments contain important improvements in the amount of compensation available, the scope of damage covered, and the allocation of jurisdiction. These conventions modernized the nuclear liability regime. Furthermore, the 1997 CSC provides the framework for establishing a global regime with widespread adherence by nuclear and non-nuclear countries. The international nuclear liability regime is a special and exceptional regime in that its scope is limited to risk of an exceptional character for which common law rules and practice are not suitable. It thus derogates in some important respects from general civil liability regimes. Generally speaking, all conventions, whether OECD or Vienna, apply to liability for nuclear damage caused by a nuclear accident in a nuclear installation situated in the territory of a contracting party or in the course of transport of nuclear material to or from such an installation. Moreover, there are seven main principles common to the substantive conventions, which have also been reflected in most national nuclear liability laws worldwide. These include liability without fault, exclusive liability of the operator, minimum amount of liability, mandatory amount of liability, limitation of liability in time, non-discrimination, and exclusive jurisdictional competence. Let us now turn to the fifth part of my lecture, National Nuclear Law. As I noted earlier, several of the relevant international legal instruments within their scope of application oblige countries to establish effective national nuclear legislation. The aim is to harmonize legislation in this field and apply best international practices. The legislative framework is an essential prerequisite for the safe, secure, and peaceful use of ionizing radiation and consequently an enabling factor for countries to fully benefit from the contribution of nuclear technology and its applications to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. What are the characteristics of nuclear law that distinguish it from the other aspects of national law? A number of basic concepts often expressed as fundamental principles can be mentioned in this regard. The safety principle, the security principle, the Responsibility Principle, the Permission Principle, the Continuous Control Principle, the Compensation Principle, the Sustainable Development Principle, the Compliance Principle, the Independence Principle, the Transparency Principle, and International Cooperation is the final principle. I mentioned earlier the 3S approach to nuclear law. Since its inception, the IAEA has also been providing member states legislative assistance on nuclear law to help them in adhering to and implementing the relevant instruments in this field. All IAEA assistance on member states' nuclear legislative frameworks is guided by this 3S approach. And this term reflects the three technical areas that must be addressed in establishing an adequate legislative and regulatory framework to ensure the peaceful uses and prevent the non-peaceful uses of nuclear energy and ionizing radiation. Namely, you know them now, safety, security, and safeguards. As is increasingly recognized, measures taken to address one of these key areas can contribute to addressing others as well. A good example is the adoption of measures for physical protection of nuclear material. Such measures obviously help to ensure the safe uses of this material while also protecting against the diversion for malicious purposes. A well-developed regulatory safety infrastructure in a state can help ensure the security of nuclear and radioactive material. As part of our Legislative Assistance Program, we have published model provisions needed for the regulatory control of facilities, activities, and practices. The provisions are aimed at harmonizing national legislation in this field with the aim of bringing laws close to the international standards and best practice recommended for use in national nuclear legislation. The purpose is to achieve conformity in the content, application, interpretation, enforcement, and quality of nuclear law across countries. This 3S approach is also chosen with the aim of consolidating regulatory functions by providing for the establishment of a single regulatory body with functions in all three technical areas, rather than having separate regulatory bodies for each one. Common elements concern provisions providing for the establishment of a system of regulatory control, including the establishment or designation of an effectively independent and adequately resourced regulatory body, with a clear delineation of regulatory functions. Other more specific elements address the various subject areas of nuclear law, including radiation protection, safety of nuclear facilities, emergency preparedness and response, radioactive waste and spent fuel management, nuclear liability, safeguards, security, physical protection. Significantly, the legislative framework needs to provide the foundation for the system of regulatory control, the regulatory framework, by providing for the establishment or designation of a regulatory body with the requisite independence, human, and financial resources, and a clearly defined set of functions, including standard setting, authorization, inspection, and enforcement, as well as providing for a clear delineation and coordination of responsibilities. A fundamental requisite for an effective regulatory body is that it possesses an adequate measure of independence or separation from entities having interests or responsibilities that could unduly influence regulatory decision-making. Such entities include not only the regulated industry and medical users of radioactive material and technology, but also other governmental bodies charged with the development or promotion of the technology, as well as political bodies and non-governmental bodies. I'm coming to the conclusion of this lecture, and as you've seen, nuclear law has both international and national components The basic feature of which is the dual focus on risks and benefits. The objective is to provide, as I've demonstrated, a legal framework for conducting activities related to nuclear energy and ionizing radiation in a manner that adequately protects individuals, property and the environment from the harmful effects of ionizing radiation and ensure that they are conducted exclusively for peaceful purposes. Nuclear law provides a foundation to achieve this goal of harnessing the power of nuclear technology and its applications. It's an essential prerequisite for ensuring safe, secure, and peaceful uses of nuclear technology. The non is the underpinning legal framework. Given the important role of nuclear law as an integral part of the global nuclear architecture and critical to its future, it can be expected that we, the IAEA, we will continue playing a multifaceted role in the development and implementation of the legal frameworks in this field. I would like to conclude by referring you to the detailed list of references that we've included, along with the recording of this lecture. And I also invite you, if you'd like to know more about the IAEA, or dive in deeper to any of the elements of nuclear law that I've addressed, I encourage you to visit us at the IAEA.org website. Thank you so much for your attention.